So, Mark, thank you very much for coming first. You're very welcome. Now, I'd love to dive straight in. Artificial intelligence and its transformative powers. Yeah. What is the fuss about AI? Um, well, I think you're right. It's a fuss about AI. Uh, and actually, when, when we look at industries that are doing amazing things with data, they're probably not doing AI the way that people think they're sure. doing. So, so for me, you will often hear me talk about data science or machine learning much more than you'll hear me talk about AI, which is sort of a broad catch-all for magical powers. Okay, cool. And where do you see the sort of potential of AI going forward? So there are definitely amazing things happening. Uh, for, for me, one of the most interesting things has been the democratization of, of the tool sets around machine learning over the past few years. We've just seen TensorFlow 2 has just been released very recently. So it's a, it's a framework that makes it easy for people to start adopting um, machine learning techniques into, into their businesses. And we're seeing this, this same pattern repeat, which is when I first created my, my first data science team probably seven years ago, uh, I had to go out and recruit PhD students. It was the only way to get the people with the deep statistical understanding of the, the, the patterns that they were working in. Um, but now the tool set's much easier. The popularity of, uh, of courses around machine learning growing on these you know, amazing resources on edX and Coursera, um, Google, Microsoft, IBM, all making their courses freely available. So we're seeing this next generation of data scientists and machine learning developers come through, which is powering the adoption of these building blocks for new businesses. So we're going to see that almost every business is going to have elements of machine learning. Even if you don't see it, it's going to be somewhere under the hood of the business. That's so interesting about it becoming the next generation. And how fast do you really see that moving? Uh, it's, it's incredibly fast. And, and, and I think even more so now, when, when you look at the way that frameworks are being deliver, delivered into the market, the openness of the market to, to deliver them, um, We've seen these, these amazing advances, uh, especially in the last couple of years, we're hearing a lot about um, something called GANs, which are generative adversarial networks, um, which is a fancy term, which is you know, very technical, but what these networks are really good at doing is creating things. So before we would be able to use um, neural networks, a type of machine learning to predict outcomes. So we have to take lots of data and maybe do these incredibly powerful things like predict whether a patient will develop a disease. So, so that's one of the things that we have previously been able to do. Now with some of these new approaches, we're actually able to create things, which does lead to slightly scary uh, outcomes like the creation of deep fakes, the creation of, of nearly real human text. So all of these things are now coming out. Oh my goodness. Okay, so if you're, you're an organization, how deep should we be looking to, to deploy? Should we be looking, you know, where, where do you put the limit on deployment? in terms of depth? So, it, it, really great question. I, it, I typically will go into a business and work with the CEO or the CTO, the sort of the existing executive team. Uh, and it's, you know, it wouldn't be the first time if I went into a business and they asked me to hire some data scientists and machine learning engineers for them mm. without necessarily knowing the, the outcome. And I think that for me, a, a very sensible approach, because data science is such a broad field, um, the, the skills between, for example, natural language processing are completely different for image recognition. And so if you just go out and try to operationalize machine learning techniques into, into your business, it will probably cost a lot and there'll be lots of mistakes. So I always recommend that people build small teams, often look to partners to really get that skill set of understanding how do we set up a hypothesis? How do, we, how do we create an assumption that we want to test and then see if there is actually some value there? So you move from this hypothesis-driven experiment into a proof of concept, into some immediate value that can be delivered to the organization, and then you need to operationalize it at scale. So there's lots of stages through that process. And should a CEO be looking at himself and saying, 
am I at risk of losing my job via AI? Uh, CEOs are probably one of the roles that most, um, most experts feel are probably safe for a little while. <laughs> um, it's really interesting, but for me, because I do a lot of work on the other side of, of the pitch, sort of looking at how do I make things more operationally efficient, and the thing that you come to realize very quickly is humans are incredible. They're, mm. they're, they're way better than any existing AI at many, many tasks, not everything. Mm. Um, and the benefit of using people is they're infinitely flexible. And so what you really see in any automation, whether it's machine learning driven automation, data science, AI, whatever the automation is, it's, it's often much easier to put people in at the, the very beginning, but then as that job becomes rote and it becomes something which is repeated or boring or not using people for the incredible skills that they've got, then they should be replaced with automation. And, and who do you believe within the organization should be the one that actually leads the transformation? It's a great question. So I think the CTO bears a lot of responsibility for this. Uh, and increasingly over my career, uh, I, I feel that the, the role of the CTO is half the time being a salesperson. Mm. Because what you're doing is you're not thinking deep technical thoughts. Actually, what you're doing is you're creating a pitch which you're taking to the executive team, you're taking to investors and stakeholders, and you're proposing, this is a vision, I need you to buy into it. So I think the, the role of the CTO, potentially the CDO, the CIO, um, they can drive those change initiatives, but invariably they succeed when it's spread across functions. So there might be a particular leader, but you want to bring marketing, you want to bring the people team, you want to bring the finance team on that journey with you. So that's very interesting. So you're not seeing this very much as a, this is just another IT project for another IT director to take control of. You're seeing this as, this is something to be much higher. No, absolutely. If you, if you want to see traditional IT and the, the way that IT was driven as a silo and it had a, uh, it was a cost center for the organization and it was never really responsible for generating value, it's just not appropriate anymore. So right now, value is, is driven through the adoption of technology. This is, this is what we want to create. How can we use technology to harness that? Now, what would success look like for an AI transformation within a company? How would you go about measuring that? It's a great question. The success is fundamentally driven by all of the metrics you would judge a normal company against, mm. so whether, whether it was AI or not. What is profit, profitability at the end of the day? How much cash do you have in the bank is the biggest metric. Um, but the use, of, the use of AI, where it doesn't work is where you think, I'm going to increase the valuation of this business. I'm going to increase revenue somehow by having AI. That, sure. that is not how it works. It works the other way around. And I think what you have to do first is understand what is the outcome we believe that, that we can have. How do we turn that into something commercial, whether that's cost saving or increased revenue? Um, but you, you start with that goal in mind, and then you try and decide what tools to apply to it. And AI might be one of the tools that's in the toolbox, and it may, may be the most compelling tool to use, but it's not always the right one. And looking at your sort of past experience with the companies that you've been working at and when you've had your own data science teams, and how, what were the sort of main, I guess, um, KPIs that you were using to, to, to measure that success? That's a great question. Often, often especially in data science, the the approach is very scientific and experimental. The clue is a bit in the name that uh, data science is more than just being a developer that can do statistics. Data mm. science is first and foremost being a scientist and starting with an assumption. And actually what you need to see in the organization is an approach to test and learn. Okay. So the organization has to change from a, a belief in setting a project which has a determined outcome and actually starting to think of how am I going to invest, serially invest, in multiple projects that may ultimately lead to a, an experiment which fails. Because experiments which fail are how we learn. 
And so in, in terms of um, when you're looking at AI, how, how do we preserve the feminine in terms of the coding? So are we talking about bias then? Yeah. So really, really interesting. Um, one of the things that I now encourage lots of the teams that I work with is to have the ethics of the approach baked into the data science capability. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a very, very interesting topic because we've moved from a, a situation where we used to write rules which invariably were written by male engineers sure. because of, of where we've come from. Um, but now we're at the mercy of data sets that we're training. The fundamental difference between old techniques and modern techniques is we train machine learning algorithms on data and then expect those to create the, the rules that, that we'll make decisions based on. And if the information that we give it is biased, and it can be biased in lots of different ways, it doesn't just have, have to be feminine, it can be race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality. Wow. There are lots and lots of different ways that bias could creep in. It's actually the responsibility of the data science team, more than anybody else in, in the organization, to be on the lookout for areas where any kind of bias could creep into the experiments. Sure. And how, how will staff respond, do you think, to suddenly hearing about a massive you know, rollout of AI implementation that could, I guess, you could feasibly say that they could end up losing their jobs from it? Weirdly, humans have been hearing this for the past 200 years. Sure. So um, automation has always been a threat. Automation has always resulted in job losses. Um, but weirdly, it's also leading us to the, the lowest unemployment that we've ever seen. So automation is only increasing. And what we can hope on the positive side is that automation leads to more people being employed in more creative roles. And Mark, if you were to suddenly, you were actually to see your, work, your workforce suddenly become very resistant to it, would, is there any sort of implemented changes that you'd, you'd, you'd adapt or adopt? Um, it, it goes very, very firmly back to the way that you communicate those changes, being very clear about the expected outcomes, explaining why you are doing something. So not just telling people we are going to do something, this is what you are going to do, but actually explaining the whys underneath. One of the things that I find most powerful is to use evangelists from, from within the teams, and this goes for any, any kind of cultural transformation, is that, that it isn't a top-down change. Actually, what you try and do is you try and find the, um, these pockets of early adoption inside the business, and you take them along on the journey. You invest in them. You make, you make them your sales teams, your HR teams, your finance teams. They're the evangelists for the change, and they teach other people why it's good rather than the top saying that it's something you have to do. So, Mark, you've had a you know, wealth of experience in working at some of the you know, biggest companies in the UK and globally. How do you, how do you foresee sort of a scaling an innovative team? It's a great question, really, really something that I spend a lot of my time thinking about. Um, it's maybe boring for some people, but I'm, I come from a long background of building agile teams. Mm. Um, so I, I sort of grew up moving from waterfall teams in the, in the noughties all the way through to adopting agile. And when we, when we first adopted agile, it was very much do the things by the book rather than understand the deep philosophy behind it. And I think we're starting to see that people are really starting to understand the why. So it, instead of it being, this is a scrum team, this is what it looks like, this is the ceremony that is locked within just an IT function, just within a development function. What's happening now is that people are starting to take some of those principles outside of just engineering. And for me, that's the core of how you start structuring teams. We mentioned experimentation, how experimentation is a driver for this cultural change inside businesses. And for me, the most successful way to build innovation into a business is to have a side-by-side change process where you can create small teams which might start with one or two people mm. um, and you identify the assumption that you want them to test the outcome that you want the, those people to uh, to drive towards 
And really what you're trying to do is drive down uncertainty. So you start in, when you start any project, you start from the highest uncertainty. And you want to then break down that and understand, okay, well, we've made some assumptions, what was true, what wasn't true. And each, each iteration, each subsequent investment should be at a stage of less uncertainty. So you're more certain about a positive outcome. So your organization actually has to support teams which can grow with the right people for the right phase of the project. Not, here is a five million pound budget, come back in two years when you've been successful, but actually more go away for two weeks and come back and tell me what you've learned. Very interesting. And now what, I guess, setting up innovative teams, you're saying it's the sort of thing that might, I guess, be one of your main main issues and concerns as to how you're going to make it successful. What are the main things as a CIO that just keeps you up at night? Um, it's a great question. Uh, I think around data protection, data security is always something that is knocking at your door as a CIO. So you, you still have ultimate responsibility for, for the security and in, in, in increasingly digital organizations, um, even things like physical security are taking a back seat to the, the digital security. Uh, there isn't a month that goes past without another story of another route into, into organizations where you're concerned about how you can approach this with, with your own businesses. Um, and that spans across the entire business. So uh, the, the security of the, the business is really driven by good policies, a good baseline that goes from the, the physical security of your building all the way through to how, how you secure your cloud providers. So that, that is definitely a concern, and that's probably the most clear and present one because you, you hear and read about it all the time. But underneath that, the real concern is how do, how do I as a CTO grow a technology function, which could be with your own internal staff, with your partner network, with your supply chain, to meet the company goals? Will I get outcompeted? Will my product suddenly not be loved anymore? How do I know I'm making the right decisions? So building a team that can create the analytics, that has the right dashboards, that is giving the right information through the business, they're all sort of the next tier of, of concerns that you have. And out of those concerns, from your experience, has there been anything that's just sprung up out of nowhere that's caught you by surprise? Well, all, all the time. Um, and I think, I think being able to re react and respond in those situations is really key. That goes, a lot of that goes back to having the discipline and the forethought around some of the process to respond. Um, so some of those, some of that ability is driven by good governance, mm -hmm. um, but also the, the ability to baked into the organization to, to flex to demand. So as an example, if, a, if you have a, a large partner agreement, so you're working with, you're working with a, um, a very large partner that's responsible for a lot of your revenue, they come in, they want to double their, um, their demands on you, so they're going to bring in twice the revenue, but you can't scale your team. If you're then locked into suddenly trying to find, in London of all places, another tier of developers, sure and you haven't ever worked with a partner before, you're very fixed and inflexible. So creating a business architecture, not just the technical architecture, but a business architecture that lets you, lets you flex and scale is really important. Okay, and that, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. And so in terms of, you're looking back and you're saying, right, my experience, what would you say you've, you know, you've accomplished, the best thing that you've accomplished as being a CIA? That is a very interesting question. I, I mean, I have to look back fondly at my time at Reed, which uh, you know, I, I, joined, I joined right at the very beginning of my career. And as a result, we got millions of people jobs. Um, so, so as I look back, and you know, that, that was an amazing opportunity to, for, for me to look back at a big achievement. But I think more recently, um, the decision to, to really focus on my own individual learning. So the, the learning that I could do by stepping into a, into a variety of roles in a variety of different industries is something that gives me a significant amount of pride. Now, I know you've had a bit of experience working with Liberus. That's right. 
what, what were you doing with them? So Libris are a fantastic business that I've been involved in, with for a couple of years. Um, and when, when I started my career getting involved in fintechs, I was a little bit nervous about working in the lending industry. Mm. Um, um, and so anything, anything that was re related to, um, to cash advances or loans, I wasn't entirely sure about it. It wasn't my background. And very quickly, Libris stood out as probably my go-to to explain how, how well um, small scale-up businesses can support an entire ecosystem. So Libris is a fintech um, which supports small businesses across the, the UK and now internationally where um, it is able to help these small businesses through their credit card transactions to take out cash advances which is um, the, 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 low, the, the cash advance is predicated on the credit card transactions that are coming through that business. Sure. So the example I typically use is if you're a coffee shop um, and you need a new coffee machine that's going to cost you £10,000 to refit your shop, that cash might not be immediately available. So you could go to somewhere like Liberus um, and they will be able to use a lot of smart technology behind the scenes to actually help you take out a cash advance, pay for that coffee machine, get your customers in, and then repay that through your credit card swipes, which is great for the business because it fluctuates with, with demand. So if sure. customers are walking in, you're repaying your cash advance. And if, you're, if, if it's a downturn because it's, it's raining outside, you're not sure. repaying as much of that. So it's a, it's a business that helped me completely reformulate my own opinion of uh, the financial services industry. Fantastic.